I don't know of any type of memory that isn't enhanced by sleep. We don't know any animals that don't sleep. And we haven't shown any animals that don't show sleep-dependent improvements in their memories. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 166. And this episode is an absolute banger, one of my favorites, with Robert Bob Stickgold, who is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, where he researches sleep and dreams from a cognitive neuroscience perspective, though we actually do get a little bit into psychoanalysis when we talk about dreams. But in this episode, we talk about the remarkable the remarkable role of sleep and memory processing and emotional regulation. So some of the experiments we talk about are very, very striking. Uh, how sleep deprivation affects performance, how certain mental abnormalities affect sleep and how sleep affects them, and then the evolutionary purpose and function of dreams and this is all among other things that get mentioned here and there. But there were two very important takeaways for me. Uh, one was the role or the roles of hypnagogic dreams in sleep onset. And hypnagogic dreams, if you're like me and you didn't know these, this, uh, this phrase, is, well, they're, they're sleep onset dreams, literally. So they're the sorts of dreams that you have as you're falling asleep. So keep your ears open for some hot tips on falling asleep faster that this uh, N of one, who usually, it usually takes me a while to fall asleep because I'll get in bed and then pins the podcast who has just arrived from a chicken feast will sit on my chest and I, I can't fall asleep on my back, but I like to give her a few minutes of quality chest time before I roll over. But anyway, this N of one can confirm that these sleep tips have been working well once I start using them. And then the second hot take or, or tip was about the evolutionary function of optimism, which has me trying to feel a bit more optimistic. So this episode was absolutely terrific. Thanks to Bob. And without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with said Bob. The last few conversations I've recorded for the show over the past few days, they've been with theoretical physicists and an interest in black holes or quantum mechanics or the Big Bang. It doesn't require much to motivate. These are just inherently exotic phenomena. And sleep, on the other hand, though, don't get me wrong, I am I'm thrilled to be talking about sleep. But it's more quotidian and literally if if one has good sleep habits. But what was it about sleep that first got under your skin and made you want to spend your career researching it? Well, there were two separate lines that led to this point. One was a fascination with dreaming and with dreams. 
And in most senses of that, it's no different from everybody else in the world, as far as I can tell, for at least the last 5,000 years. But also as a scientist and as a cognitive neuroscientist, I was fascinated by the incredible ignorance we had on the topic of what dreams are and why we have them. Sleep came from a slightly different angle because early on I decided that sleep had something to do with memory. I'm, I'm not sure why, um, although there is, if you dig, you can find uh, Greek rhetoricians from you know 90 BC or talking about how a single night of sleep strengthens your memories. And I was just fascinated by that question of, are we in fact doing nothing while we sleep? Or are interesting things happening? And I can see how that question also dovetails with dreams because dreams, as you mentioned, have always been thought of as very interesting. But you said a minute ago that you're a cognitive neuroscientist. And I think that's where I'd like to begin by, by better understanding your approach to sleep versus others that are out there. So, I mean, sleep was very important to Freud, but he had a psychoanalytic perspective and this meant he used quite uh, different tools and had a quite different approach from you. And I mean, marine biologists who are interested in dolphin sleep have a completely different set of tools and approaches, but you're in a psychiatry department. And as you said, you're a cognitive neuroscientist. So what does this say about the sorts of tools you're using or the broader conceptual framework within which your research falls as you approach dreams on the one hand or, or memory and learning on the other? No, good questions. The, the fact I'm in a psychiatry department is actually just an accident of fate that there was someone, Alan Hobson, a sleep researcher who I wanted to work with, and he was a psychiatrist. So I sort of fell into that department. Probably more important is the fact that I have my bachelor's, master's, and PhD in biochemistry. I, in fact, got my doctorate uh, doing research on DNA replication in bacteria. So, sort of in my formative years, I got this concept of how science is done as a real hard science, as something where you ask questions, where you understand exactly what you're asking. You understand exactly the uh, the universe of possible answers to the questions. And you just you design experiments that test a hypothesis about that question. So when I moved into cognitive neuroscience, the first thing I discovered is, well, our endpoints are really kind of slappy. Like, I want to study memory. Okay, what's memory? Well, you know what memory is. It's, you know, all that stuff we remember. Oh, wait, that's the same word, remember, memory. So that doesn't answer. You know, 25 years later, I discovered that we still don't know what a memory is. I mean, in terms of the brain instantiation of a memory, how it's encoded in the neurons in our brain, how we create that encoding, how we search for and find that information later, how we retrieve that information. At the level that I really want to study, which is at a molecular and neural level, we aren't even close yet. So it informs me in sort of a frustrated way in, in some senses, but it also makes me, I think, this sounds sort of arrogant. It makes me, I think, more um, demanding and sophisticated 
and quantitative in my approach to my studies. Um, I, I, I try harder, I think, than others to eliminate alternate hypotheses as opposed to just um, getting evidence in support of mine. Hmm. I think this, this need to be demanding and rigorous is definitely quite helpful when you're tackling dreams, which have been associated with pseudoscience and fortune telling and astrology and all of this sort of thing since the dawn of time. But one thing that I, I that you, you already sparked my curiosity with, do you know why those Greek rhetoricians of 90 BC drew the connection between memory and sleep? Or was that just uh, a fact you discovered that surprised you? Well, it's, it's yeah. So it was actually Matt Walker, who was a postdoc of mine and is who is now out there, probably is a bigger name than me in the field. Um, Matt Walker ran across this quote um, from a guy named Quintilian, who was a rhetorician back in the first century BC, who actually said, and I could dig up the quote, but it approximately goes, it's a striking fact that the interval of a single night of streak Sorry. It's a striking fact that the interval of a single night of sleep can increase the strength and vividness of our memories. So that was just observation. You would go to bed at night and you wake up. I mean, we all know this phenomenon of sleeping on a problem, right? You've got something you're trying to figure out. It's kind of complicated. You can't quite see your way to the right answer with any confidence, and you say, let me sleep on it. That's what we say. And you wake up in the morning, and two things happen, and it's interesting. You end up with a clear, very often, you end up with a clear decision as to what the correct answer is, and you have no idea how you reach that conclusion. It's, it's a gut feeling that develops overnight, and people retrospectively tend to be happy with those decisions. So we can know that that happens. We can use that phrase, but we sort of don't sit back and say, so what the hell is happening while we're sleeping to the information that we went to bed with that we have this answer when we wake up in the morning? Everybody who's a parent knows that if a two-year-old doesn't get her a nap in the afternoon, she's a holy terror for the rest of the afternoon. But nobody asks the question, what happens during her 45-minute nap? What happens in her brain that makes it possible for her to be calmer, more in the present, more able to cope with adversity than she would have been if she didn't have that nap? And so those are the kinds of questions that I don't manage to answer, but which fascinate me and which I probe the edges of. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you mentioned Matt Walker. I uh, used this textbook on the neuroscience of sleep that the two of you co-edited in, in part to prepare for this. So I don't know how many people listening are going to want to go into a textbook, but I might as well mention it now. But where, I, where I'd like to be... So Matt has also written the book, Why We Sleep which has actually been a runaway bestseller as a layperson's introduction to the whole question of sleep and its function. Yeah, I've heard many interviews with him and, and listened to his, his podcast, and he's, he's definitely a great communicator. So you did a good job picking a good postdoc. 
But where I'd like to start as we get into your research is you you said a couple of minutes ago that we still don't know what a memory is in terms of its brain instantiation. And I'd like to step take a step back even further. And there are different types of memories. And I'm, I'm far from an expert on this, but there are short-term memories and long-term memories and procedural memories, visual memories, uh, memories of facts, and on and on. And the first thing to ask is whether or not these titles or descriptions that I've given are just ways of categorizing things for the purpose of of discussion, or whether they reflect deeper distinctions in the way memories are treated and, and processed by the brain. Yeah, something that I have been surprised by and delighted by is all these categories that psychologists basically have invented. You know, there's episodic memories, memories of events, of episodes from our life. There's a semantic memory, memory for facts, like what's the capital of France? And there's procedural memory, such as motor memory or visual memory. So uh, how to ride a bicycle, how to reach into your pocket and pull out a quarter, which if you stop and think about it, is not easy because you've got nickels that are very close to the same size. So there's things that the psychologists say, well, these feel like very different types of memories. And we now know that they're actually all coded and stored differently in the brain. So episodic memories are absolutely dependent on a structure called the hippocampus, which is sort of deep in the middle of the brain. Um, and those episodic memories tend to turn into what we call semantic memories, which are memories of facts and general knowledge. So. Um, most people in your audience will know what the capital of France is. Um, but no one will remember where they learned that. No one will remember the event of learning that fact. Even though at the time it happened, it was stored as an episodic memory. They could have come home and said, Mom, guess what the capital of France is? And if she was clever, she said, Ooh, I don't know. What is it? You know, and the child would say, Oh, it's Paris. And she would remember the fact that in class today, her teacher showed them a map and told her the name Paris, and she remembered it. And then over the next maybe just a week or a month or certainly the next 10 years, all of that memory evaporated except for the fact that Paris is the capital of France. And so it now is stored out in the cortex or the bumpy part of the brain that you think of when you see a picture of the brain. Um, and it's gone from the hippocampus, and it's no longer an episodic. You don't even know what year or whether you learned it in class or what. So there's these different types of memories, and they're actually stored differently. Um, procedural learning, learning how to do things, um, that doesn't even require a hippocampus. If your hippocampus is destroyed either um, by a tumor or some diseases, uh, so that you are an amnesic and can't form new, quote, memories, you can still learn how to ride a bicycle. You can still learn how to type. So those are stored and encoded initially in different parts of the brain. So yeah, those different kinds of memories are stored physically in different places. Whether the way they're stored are particularly different from one another, we don't know. 
because we don't really understand how any of them are actually encoded in the brain. Hmm. Uh, where, just, I'm, I'm curious now, where are the procedural memories stored? Well, it depends on, on the type, but um, a lot of them are stored in what's called the striate cortex, which is sort of in the middle of the brain again, but a little higher up. Um, and they're also stored, they're stored depending on modality. So if it's a, a motor skill, learning how to type a particular sequence rapidly, um, that'll go into the motor cortex, which is a pair of strips, one on each side for each side of your body, right about here in the brain. If it's an auditory learning or a visual learning, it'll occur in what's called auditory cortex, which is more on the side or visual cortex, which strangely enough, it's way in the back of the brain. So it's, it's stored in essence in the same place that it's experienced. So when a visual signal comes in, it goes to the back of your brain, to visual cortex, and that's where the memory will be stored. It'll be stored in the form somehow that it was originally perceived. Hmm. The reason that I ask is that I understand that the brain sort of evolved outward, starting with the, the more core components. And I'm wondering, so you say episodic memories are stored in the hippocampus, but I'm guessing then linguistic memories are stored in the area of the brain that it's newer processes cortex, language. Right. right. And that that's farther out than the hippocampus. So I'm wondering if evolutionarily episodic memories are more primitive, whereas linguistic memories are... Uh, oh, I'm sure more. episodic memories are about as as basic as you can go. Now, there's a, a problem talking about episodic memories because their definition includes an assumption of consciousness. Okay, so Endel Tolving describes an episodic memory as one that you can relive, one that you can bring back to mind and see again. So if I ask you, what did you have for lunch today? You, know, you can actually see the plate and see the food on it and remember the taste and whether there was anything off about it. And so the, the word to remember sort of has that implication of re-memorizing, of, of, of bringing it back into our mind. So when we talk about lower animals having episodic memory, we're on a little bit of squishy ground. Because if we want to imply the same concept, then those animals have to be conscious, which which we don't know scientifically whether they are or not. You know that that pup on your lap is conscious, right? Yes, I think so. Right. I hope so. But my daughter used to think that a rock she had was conscious. So, you know, we have to have a little bit of, of you know, lack of confidence about those decisions. I, I sometimes startle my students by saying there has never been a scientific experiment that showed that humans are conscious. We don't know how to ask that question. We don't know how to show what consciousness is. We just know each of us individually that we're conscious and we know what that means. And we project it onto everybody else, which is probably a reasonable thing to do. But it, it wasn't a scientific experiment that showed us that humans are conscious. So, so with that caveat, there are 
memories of locations and emotions associated with those locations that we know rats have and, and mice have. Um, and probably, I would assume, as far back as, as the midbrain existed, which was early on in mammalian evolution. It's not further back than that. Um, there was something like episodic memories, reminding us that that berry is not a good berry to eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to stick with memory for now, but I imagine these same concerns about consciousness extend to discussions of whether or not other animals dream, for instance. Mm -hmm. But why don't we pick a, uh, a memory, procedural memory, for instance. How or what sorts of processes go on during sleep if you've learned to ride a bike that day? Riding a bike is a hard one. To, you see, when you ask me that question, I don't know whether you want me to tell you about experiments that haven't been done or to make something up based on what I know. So let me pick a simpler one. I'm going to teach you to sit in your computer terminal, take your left four fingers and put them on the keys one, two, three, and four, and type the sequence four, one, three, two, four over and over again as quickly and accurately as you can. Okay, if I have you do that for 30 seconds and then rest for 30 seconds and then do it again 12 times, at the end of that time, you'll be about 60% faster than you were at the start. You've learned that sequence. You've gotten faster at it. But you'll have plateaued the last three or four trials of 30 seconds each. You won't get any faster at all. If I do that in the morning send you away, bring you back 12 hours later that evening and have you sit down and type. You will type that sequence exactly as fast as you were at the end of training. You won't have forgotten it at all. You really learned it. But if I train you in the evening and bring you back 12 hours later again, but after a night of sleep, you'll be 20% faster. So something happens while you're sleeping to the to that memory, to the way that information was encoded initially in your brain, so that it's more efficient, it's more effective. You can actually type it faster. And if you talk to a, a pianist or a gymnast, they'll tell you, oh yeah, I, I worked on that Chopin etude for two hours and got nowhere and slammed the piano shut and went to bed. And I got up the next morning and played it, played it perfectly the first time through. And they they have magical thinking. They say, oh, I was just tired at the end of training. But no, they actually got better over sleep. And part of what happens, we know, is that they, they take the pieces and sew them together. What do I mean? If you look at the actual timing of each of a subject's keystrokes, 4, 1, 3, 2, 4, 4, 1, 3, 2, 4, 4, 1, 3, 2, 4, everybody's tends to break it into two pieces, either 41324 or 41324. I don't know why, but they don't type... Chunking. Oh, yeah, it's chunking, exactly. And it's easier to learn that way. And they come back the next morning and the chunks are completely sewn together and they're taking 41324. So that's one thing that happens while you sleep. If you've chunked information... 
the brain identifies the chunks and whatever it is that connects them is strengthened enough so that now it's one coherent whole instead of chunks. So everybody learns phone numbers by chunking. It's very funny. If I give you a 10-digit number, just write it down. Uh, six, one, seven, two, three, 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 seven, six, eight. You can't remember. But if I tell you it's my phone number, and it's actually six, one, seven, two, three, 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 seven, six, eight, it's much easier for you to learn. And yet, when I think of it, it's gotten all smeared into one again. So this is something that sleep does, and it doesn't happen while you're awake. It's not just the brain needs time to do this. The brain needs sleep. And that's part of what makes it faster, but you also get faster on all the keystrokes. You get faster typing every single keystroke. So that's a cat, not a dog. I'm sorry. No, you called her a pup, and I was I, I, I thought, thought, thought that was kind of funny. I thought you were just being cute, but no, it's a cat. It's a cat. So She's my co-host. So there's a great, by the way, example of um, non-declarative knowledge. I look at her and I say, oh, duh, I'm sorry, that's a cat. But if you were a Martian and asked me, how can I tell if this animal is a cat or a dog? Most people have a very hard time answering that question. Tell me, what's the difference in appearance between a cat and a dog? How do you tell them apart? Yeah, I was just thinking about that because I say, oh, well, her ears are pointier than my dog. That doesn't really help you. Uh, I, I could, it would be very difficult for me to articulate the way that she moves that's different, the contours of her head. It would be very, very difficult. I think the only thing I can really point to you immediately is the shape of her eyes or her irises. But if you just saw a picture of a cat or a dog, you wouldn't have to look at their eyes to instantly know. No, you're right. That's a cat or a dog. So that's something we learn not by being taught two plus two is four, by being told, this is a doggy. Oh, look, this is a kitty. Here's another kitty. Here's a doggy, and our brains just naturally extract the common features within each domain and the separation between them. It's, it's part of the evolution of the brain to do that. And so when we learn procedural learnings like typing 41324, yes, we have to declaratively memorize the number sequence 41324, but that's not the learning. The learning is, we, we talk about muscle memory, right? And when we say muscle memory, we say that because we can't image the memory. So if you had a stroke, I can say, oh, I'm sorry, Robinson. I'm sorry to hear this. How, how is your memory? And you say, uh, sort of okay. Do you know what the capital of France is? And you say, yeah, yeah, it's Paris. Can you still ride a bicycle? Uh, I don't know. I, I get, I don't know. Right? You can't look into your memory and see, oh, yeah, I know how to ride a bicycle. Um, because That's it's so fascinating. It's not stored. Technically, the information is not stored in a location or a form that our conscious mind has access to. In fact, consciously, 
if you're like most people, you don't know how to ride a bicycle. Tell me what you do if you want to turn a bicycle. Come on. You lean. Okay. You win. <laughs> I was just thinking about this yesterday as I was riding my bicycle. I thought, you know, I should, it, it seems intuitive that I should just turn my wheel. But if I did that, I would just immediately fall over. <laughs> so that's what I'll do. I'll ask someone. So how do you turn a bike? And they say, well, you turn the handlebars. I say, yeah. okay, imagine you're coming down a hill. And at the bottom of the hill, you've built up some speed and you have a sharp left turn to make and you do this. And everybody goes, oh, what, what happens? I just went over the handlebars, right? And then they can feel it. Then they can sort of feel, oh, you have to lean into the turn. But we don't need to know that fact to learn how to ride a bicycle or, in fact, to ride the bicycle. So that's, again, differences in different types of memories. And, and part of what sleep probably does is helps us take those declarative memories and move them into semantic or procedural memories, which we can use much more efficiently. I mean, imagine if every time you want to, well, I'm sorry, you're probably young enough that you never did add up a column of numbers on a piece of paper. But imagine if you said, okay, four plus three, oh, that was on a Tuesday. Mrs. Linden taught us on Tuesday that four plus three is seven. Okay. And then seven, you, you don't want to do it that way. You don't want to invoke the original episodic memory. So one of the sleep that, things that sleep does is it'll take a memory, calculate by its own algorithms which parts of that memory are important, strengthen those portions, and let the rest of the memory drift away. So when you come back to it later, you can go right to the core of what you need. Hmm. And but you're also studying this at the molecular level, right? Or or am I incorrect about that at this point? No, it's a sadness in my life. But when when I started doing this this sleep research, there were just no ends to the molecular yet, and so I I decided to settle for working at the sort of cognitive, psychological, neuropsychological level. So I myself have not done cellular work, but a lot of it has been done now. Hmm. But well, I, I, so I, I'd still like to better understand the, the way that the neural dimension comes in here. So first, with regard to this, this experiment with the chunking in the four, one, three, two, four, which is, I think it was what it was, 41423? 41324. Four, one. Okay, great. So you, you, you talked about how you run the experiment. Uh, then you explained how it works at a conceptual level with the chunking and what you think happens overnight. But are you also, when you're conducting the experiment, uh, somehow monitoring the participants' brains to see what's happening at the neurological level? I haven't. Others have. And others have looked at how that uh, invoking of the brain differs um, the morning after as opposed to the first time. Um, and what we see when, when they're learning it is that most of the activity is, again, in what's called motor cortex which is a strip of cortex, one on each side, one for each side of the body. Um, 
which actually controls our motors. If you go in there with an electrode and stimulate a place in the brain, you know, my finger goes like this, then you stimulate somewhere else, and my arm goes like this. Um, and, and that's the region that's activated. What we find after net of sleep is that the activation in that area is increased. So now you get more activity um, in that region of the brain while typing it than you did when you initially learned it. So it seems as if it's actually strengthening, that by strengthening the representation of the memory, it allows that, that cortex to be more actively driving that behavior. I'm having a, another conversation for the show later today with a researcher on intelligence. And though we haven't had the conversation, I've, of course, prepared for it. And something that I found surprising was different people's brains solve problems differently depending on their intellectual aptitudes. So somebody might encounter the same two different people might encounter the same question on an IQ test or something, but their brains will solve it differently. Do you find great homogeneity between subjects in the way that they process memories? Well, with the caveat that we're using a very blunt instrument, even though we have brain imaging, um, at the level of brain imaging on this particular test, we don't see much difference. There are other tests that we've used that we've gotten from other people who studied them much more than we did um, that show that as people learn it, the area of their brain that they use shifts. So they start out treating it as an episodic learning task, and you see a lot of activity in the hippocampus. And then over time, and I would argue over days with nights of sleep in between, it becomes proceduralized, and you see that hippocampus becoming less active and the striated cortex becoming more active. And it turns out that if you have people who are sleep deprived, um, they will often use, you'll often see a decrease in activity, just baseline activity in some portions of the brain. And if those are portions that are important for a particular task that they've learned, they'll now use a new part of their brain. Um, and maybe the best way to think of this is when you're trying to do those anagram puzzles where someone gives you, you know, five letters and you have to figure out what word you can spell by rearranging the letters. You can, there's basically two ways that people do it. They start saying, okay, there's two vowels. There's probably two syllables. It's probably a consonant, a vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant, maybe a the E is the second, you know, and they'll start trying to find the word. And other people will just stare at the letters until they say, oh, Apple. And you say, well, how did you know that? And they'll say, it just popped out. And if you look in the brain, you find that they're using very different brain regions because they're using different approaches to say, solve the same problem. Whether sleep regularizes that so that everybody does it the same way, whether sleep shifts it from one way of processing it to another, not enough people in the field yet to really have gotten to the answers to those questions. 
But those are good questions for us to be asking. Yeah, I was I was going to ask about sleep deprivation next and whether you had run experiments, maybe not with this particular number typing task of procedural memory, but what happens to performance and within the brain if the participant doesn't sleep in those 12 intervening hours after uh, an evening learning or two days of no sleep? What happens? So... It depends on the type of memory we're talking about. You remember I said, um, if you teach someone to type 41324 in the morning and they get maybe 60% faster over the course of training, and then you bring them back that evening, they'll be exactly where they were at the end of training. That's a procedural task, and that's typical of procedural memories. If instead in the morning I had taught them a couple of dozen word pairs, uh, dog and lamp, uh, memory and tape, you know, different word pairs. And so that if I gave them the first one, they could remember the second one after we've gone through the list a dozen times and they practiced it. If they learn 24 words that way, by the evening, they'll only remember 18, maybe 16. So with episodic memory, there's a lot of forgetting across waking. So why is that important? So if I train someone on the finger tapping task in the evening and keep them up all night and test them the next morning, they'll be just where they were the evening before. So they won't have forgotten it, but they won't have gotten better. If I then let them sleep the next night, it's too late. They won't get any better the second night. You only get... In terms of sleep, you only get one night uh, to, to do this sleep-dependent memory processing. If I had taught them words and they learned at the end of training 22 out of the 24, I bring them back that evening, they only remember 16 or 18. If I train them in the evening, they'll still remember 22 or 24 the next morning. So. With episodic memory, it strengthens it in the sense that it prevents it from being forgotten. And in fact, they won't forget over the next 12 hours of wake either. It's not just that they were asleep. It was changing the memory to be resistant to that type of forgetting. And if we keep them up all night, you can guess the answer. They'll be down to 16 or 18 the next morning. Hmm. And... Do you at all take into account the amount of time that people are sleeping or the quality of their sleep for these studies, or, or is that you do? Okay. Yes. So the very first task that I worked on was what we call a visual discrimination task. We would have a screen that was full of horizontal bars all over the place. And then in the lower left quadrant, there'd be three diagonal bars, and they'd either be next to each other or above each other. And we would flash the screen for a very short period of time, milliseconds, and then ask them, were they above each other or were they next to each other? And with that one, we showed that if they got less than six hours of sleep that night, they showed no improvement the next day. They got eight hours. Again, they tended to show 15 or 20% improvement. Improvement meaning that they could identify it reliably with an even shorter presentation time. Whereas if they had 
no sleep during the night. If it had taken them 80 milliseconds, if they had to see it for 80 milliseconds, they still had to see it for 80 milliseconds. So A, you have to have at least six hours of sleep. Until my graduate student, Sarah Mednick, came along and ruined everything because she wanted to study naps. That's what I was going to ask. And I tried to explain to her that we know you need more than six hours of sleep for this to get better. You know, this nap's not going to do anything. And she listened to me very politely and said, oh, oh, yeah, I see. And then snuck off and did the study anyhow. And it turned out that a 90-minute nap gives you as much improvement as an eight-hour night while a six-hour night gives you nothing. We still don't understand that at all. We really don't. How about a 90-minute night? Oh, Lord, we never tried that. How can you say, I love these podcasts. That's a, that's a brilliant idea. We don't know. You would think that would have to give you, what's it? I don't know. I don't know. I suspect I suspect some of it has to do with getting the right kinds of sleep. So you asked about quantity of sleep and you talked about quality of sleep. So our sleep is not of a consistent form across the night. Lots of people know we have REM sleep or REM sleep, not named after the band, much as we wish it was. It's rapid eye movement sleep. And that tends to come in the later part of the night. Whereas deep sleep, what we call slow wave sleep, because the EEG has these large slow waves about this speed in the EEG, but tends to come more early in the night. And it turns out that to improve on, the, on this visual discrimination task, you need both slow wave sleep and REM sleep. And in an overnight environment, when you're getting a whole night of sleep, you need the slow wave sleep in the first part of the night and the REM sleep in the last part of the night. And it's actually multiplying those two amounts together that is this really, really strong predictor of how much you're going to improve. With a nap, you still need both, but the amounts don't seem to matter. If you get any slow wave sleep and any REM sleep, during that 90-minute nap, you seem to show good improvement. And what this really does is it throws us back to asking the question, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what's happening? What's happening to that memory during the night? And we have to say we don't know. And I usually fall back on and, and complain about other memory researchers and say, we don't know what happens to memories during the day. Right? I mean... I gave you that number 41324, and not only did your brain encode it, but it could find it again later when you went looking for it. And we don't know how it encodes it. We don't know what happened, if anything, between the time you encoded it and the time you recalled it. And we don't know how it recalled it. So, so when you push me just a little bit further and say, well, why would it only take 90 minutes in a daytime nap? And I would predict that 90 minutes at the start of the night wouldn't work because you wouldn't get REM sleep. 
But until we do the experiment, we don't know. So the sort of sleep that you get in a nap because of its diametrically opposite location in the circadian, circadian rhythm, you have a different sort of 90 minutes than you would have in the first 90 minutes of the night. Right, right. It turns out, so I simplify when I say you get your deep sleep early in the night and your REM sleep late in the night. There's actually a 90-minute cycle all night long that goes non-REM, deep non-REM, up to REM, and then back to deep non-REM, and then back to REM, and then to not-so-deep non-REM, and then to much stronger REM. So you get a little, you, you, a lot of people get a little bit of REM uh, after just the first hour of sleep, usually just a couple of minutes. And, and the REM gets stronger in each of these 90 minute cycles. And that deep sleep gets weaker. And usually by the third cycle is completely gone. So in that first 90 minutes of a night of sleep, you get lots and lots of that deep, slow wave sleep, uh, and almost no REM sleep. Um, if we did this an hour after they woke up in the morning, they tend to get a lot of REM sleep and not much slow wave sleep. In the middle of the day, they're sort of at that balance point where they'll again have some of each. And we have no idea why mechanistically, and we have no idea why functionally. Hmm. Obviously, in a podcast, we can't be uh, completely exhaustive about all the different sorts of memories and all the different nuances that go on here. But are there any diff any other types of memories that sleep has a quite different effect on or the story told about it is quite different from procedural memories? No. It really feels like no matter what kind of memory we're looking at, whether it's just learning a list of words or typing a five-digit sequence, or whether it's being given 200 trials of a probabilistic um, task where the stimuli sometimes predict one outcome and the same stimulus sometimes will predict a different outcome, but other stimuli predict those two outcomes with different probabilities, they get better at that overnight too, so that they have a better intuitive sense for any given stimulus, which one of the two outcomes is more likely. And what's, what baffles me or fascinates me the most about all of this is that kind of across the board, we see a 10 to 20% improvement over a night of sleep. Nobody gets twice as good after a night of sleep. Nobody even gets 50% better after a night of sleep. And there's no, there's no examples where people are only getting two or three percent better. And as far as I can tell, there's no examples where sleep doesn't give some benefit. And that's maybe the most striking fact. We have all these different categories of memories that are stored in different parts of the brain and encode very different types of memory. I mean, if you try to imagine what the brain would do if it wants to remember the word pair uh, tape box 
No, that's related. See, it's hard to come. Tape, chair, and what the brain has to do to get better at taping four, one, three, two, four. Those are very, you, you would think those memories are encoded very differently in what the brain needs to do to stabilize them or enhance them over a night would be very different. And that might be why we have different stages of sleep. The strong hypothesis is that the different stages of sleep evolved to provide different physiological and neurochemical uh, and electrophysiological environments that are tuned to optimally, optimally enhancing very different types of memories. So what you do for an episodic memory is flat out different from what you do for a procedural memory, and sleep had to evolve a totally different stage of sleep, if you will, to deal with that problem. But it seems to have dealt with them all. I don't know of any type of memory that isn't enhanced by sleep. We don't know any animals that don't sleep. And we haven't shown any animals that don't show sleep-dependent improvements in their memories. Is it also a... Well, I'm, I'm not so concerned with how much other animals need to sleep, but is it also a rule for humans that regardless of the sort of memory to see the 10 to 20% across the board performance that you mentioned, it is either a six-hour nighttime sleep interval or a 90-minute nap that will result in improvement? Experiments haven't been done. I mean, I can show you a graph where um, on, on that visual discrimination task where the amount of improvement that they have across the night is really strongly linear with how much sleep they got, and it hits the x-axis at six hours, so at six hours, they get zero improvement. And for every five minutes more than that, they show a little more improvement. I don't know if short sleepers don't need as much time. I don't know if long sleepers need more time or if short sleepers don't get the benefit of those last two hours that are critical for learning that visual discrimination task or if long sleepers are, quote, wasting the last couple of hours of their sleep because all the memory processing has occurred. Again, no one's done those studies yet. And they're, they're really critical in some ways for understanding how this, how this system works. Hmm. Well, one thing that we haven't talked about that's a natural question that I don't want to get to right now, I'm going to hold off on it, is the, the role of dreaming in memory consolidation. But like I said, we'll get to that. But before we move to dreaming, I know that you've also done some work on sleep and emotional processing, so not just learning and memory processing. And that's uh, particularly interested, interesting to me because I'm very interested in mental health, uh, psychotherapy, this sort of thing, and improving mental health. And if, if sleep helps with emotional processing in a way that might be uh, therapeutic. I, I'm quite curious to hear about this. So what is the story here, or the connection between emotions and sleep? So the relationship between sleep and emotions is complex. And it's complex in the normal population that gets perhaps more complex in, in 
things like PTSD. So let's, let's start with the normal situation. Um, for normal episodic memories, it appears that the sleep stage that's most important for their stabilization across the night of sleep is that deep non-REM sleep, that slow wave sleep early in the night, unless it's an emotional episodic memory. And then it seems to depend on REM sleep later in the night. Now, whether that's because it's an emotional memory or because emotional memories are just a different animal, I don't know. What do I mean by that? If I'm having you learn word pairs and I give you my favorite word pair of the day, tape, fish, if you're trying to remember that word pair, you sort of repeat in your mind whether you think about it or not, tape, fish, tape, fish, tape, fish. If you have the word pair mother rape, then your brain goes all over the place and brings in a hundred other memories and a hundred other questions and embeds that word pair in the whole question of, oh my God, I assume my mother was, she, she could never, she could, I don't know. Geez, that would have been, you know, and I know so-and-so who was raped. Um, and and your, mi your mind just can't, doesn't just sit there and go, mother rape, mother rape, mother rape. It, it brings in a huge constellation of other information. And so whether the different sleep stage dependence of non-emotional and emotional memories is just the fact that they're emotional or not emotional, or whether they are stored so critically different from one another that they call on these different stages. But we know that emotional memories tend to depend on memory late in the night. We know that with emotional memories, if you have people look at a bunch of photographs that show scenes of some neutral background scene of a room or a house or a street, and then some object in the foreground, and half of those objects are negative and aversive, and you have them just look at them and rate whether this is something you would approach or not approach. That's all you ask them to do. And then later, you test them on the object and the background separately because you originally made the photo with, with Photoshop. So you show them, okay, this crashed up car, did you ever see it before? This street, did you see it before? We test those separately. What we find is that across the night, whether it's emotional or neutral, they forget about 20% of what they remembered immediately after we showed them to them. So they forget the emotional objects, the neutral objects, the backgrounds for both. After a night of sleep, they again have forgotten about 20% of the, each of these, except the emotional objects. And those they don't forget at all. So the brain somehow when we're sleeping says, this is an emotional scene. This is the emotional core of it. I'm going to remember that emotional core and I'm for going to forget the background. This other picture I saw, it's not emotional at all. I'm going to forget all of it.
Well, of course, the brain doesn't have that conversation, right? The, the brain isn't mentally reviewing these and choosing what to maintain and what not to. There's something in the way they're initially encoded in the brain that tells the brain, this is something to be strengthened. This is something to, that I should allow to decay. So that's one thing that we know sleep does. It uses a different stage of sleep, and it can selectively maintain the critical elements of an emotional memory while letting everything else be forgotten. We also know that after a night of sleep, if you show people emotional scenes before they go to bed, and this is compared to being awake for the same interval, they will remember the emotional scenes better than neutral scenes they were shown before, but the actual emotion in, evoked in them when they see the scene, so they have a scene of, of a baby with a huge tumor where her left eye should be. She remembers that the subject remembers seeing that picture better than if they had just been awake for 12 hours. But the emotion that it, arise, it, that it arouses in them on seeing it again is weakened. And this is what uh, Matt Walker and her, his student, Elspen Summerin, um, no, I've forgotten her last name, um, what they showed, what they call the model of, of sleep to remember and sleep to forget. So sleep strengthens your ability to recognize an emotional scene as one you saw before, but reduces the affect associated with it. So we know that sleep does that too. And finally, we know that overall sleep just, I want to say, makes you a little happier makes you see the world as happier. What do I mean? If you show people faces that have been morphed between a neutral face and an angry face, or a neutral face and a sad face, or a neutral face and a happy face, and you take all of these in-between faces and you show them to people before they've slept, or you show them to them after they've slept, they tend to rate all the faces as happier after they've slept. So a face that looked slightly angry before they went to bed looks neutral, and one that looked neutral looks a little happy. So there's a change in how we perceive the world emotionally as a result of sleep. Can I tell you about PTSD? Can we hold off on PTSD for a minute and, and, and talk about the things that, because you've just said a number of very interesting things. Uh, the first thing, I mean, you, you answered this before I could ask, but I was going to ask how you test emotional processing in the lab and whether it requires a completely different paradigm, but it's neat that you're able to, at least for, in some cases, just sort of twist the existing paradigm, like with the word matching tasks to include, as opposed to tape and chair, mother and rape, you just emotionally charge the words. That's, that's very neat. When we're just looking at, so when we talk about emotional memory, we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about maybe a single event, driving down the road and seeing someone hit a cat that runs out in the road, 
and we have that as an episodic memory. We have an emotional memory of our reaction to it. If we talked about it in the therapy, the therapist would say, how did you react? And they might say, I was bummed by it, but it wasn't a big deal. Or I, I just broke down and cried because I've, I've got a cat at home and I imagined it being hurt. Um, so there's an emotional memory that forms. And there's an incredibly rich associative network that gets, that it gets tied into. So that episodic memory gets tied in with every other memory you have of a car accident. It has tied into every memory you have of an animal getting hurt or an animal being sick. It ties into every memory of a cat, especially, but other animals that you know, and to stories that you've heard about other animals. So it, it constructs this. So when you say, what's the memory? Well, we can ask whether they can remember cat tape. We can ask, do you remember seeing this cat? Is this the cat that you saw hit by the car? Or is this the cat that you saw hit by the car? And show them pictures of two cats. We can do that sort of testing of episodic memory. Testing of the others are required different techniques and sometimes totally different instrumentation. So we can measure um, sympathetic body responses to seeing the picture again as opposed to the first time. Or we can just ask them to free associate to it and see how broad a network they get after sleep as opposed to before sleep. That's never been done. But the, the, the wiring someone up to measure their, their blink reaction and their heart rate and their breath rate, um, that's been done. Uh, skin conductance responses, that's been done to look at what their sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system responses to seeing that image are after a night of sleep as opposed to before a night of sleep as opposed to across a day awake. So we use the same tools and we bring in new tools. Hmm. And then the other thing before we get to PTSD that I wanted to ask about. So when you are confronted with uh, these three findings that you mentioned, that uh, the brain prioritizes remembering the emotional content of an episode, it reduces your affective response, at least your negative affective response to these episodes. And then three, it lends a more positive valence to experience. When you're confronted with these three findings, there are a lot of different questions you could ask. My understanding is that your the sorts of questions that you're interested in are what's going on in the brain that mediates these responses but or these behaviors. But another direction, one that I'm curious if you've thought at all about this, is whether or what the evolutionary story or theory is for why we would exhibit these behaviors, why would they would be selected for. Sure. So I'll do the second question first because I've forgotten the first one already. Evolutionarily, um, all of these make perfect sense. The e emotions arise in us when something happens that's important to us. That's the simplest way to say it. 
It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. It can be a startling thing where we don't even know whether it's good or bad. But something has happened that has caused our brain to say, whoa, whoa, what was that? And the argument would be that anytime the brain says that, the information that's coming in, the information that's being encoded at that moment, is at least for the moment important and worth holding on to and worth strengthening. So why does the brain seem to improve emotional memories more than neutral memories? Just because it makes good evolutionary sense. If I walk across the street and a, a car goes in front of me, um, I don't need to remember that tomorrow. If a car, if I walk across the street and a car swerves and almost hits me, then I have to remember that. And that's the one that will get strengthened while I sleep. Whether you know, my mother always used to say things will look better in the morning. And that's that's what the study that Matt's group carried out showed, that things just do generically look better in the morning. And I would actually twist this around backwards and say, well, the fact that evolution has chosen that to be the case means that it is valuable evolutionarily. It is better to look at things from a more positive attitude the next morning. I don't know if you've ever read the studies, but the studies show that people are, who are depressed are more accurate predictors of what's going to happen than people who are happy, um, which is sort of a funny thing. But it, again, suggests that we have evolved to, to be hopeful, to put good spins on things, to try to map things to an understanding that's more positive. And I guess in the long term, that evolution has found that that works, that we do better if we make that assumption. That is, it's surprising to me that if the depressed individuals are better predictors, we would evolve to be happier. You want me to try to spin it for you? Please. It might be that what's most important from an evolutionary perspective is not to most accurately predict what's going to happen as to predict something a little better than that. That in so doing, it pushes you to act in a way that will make that better outcome more likely. Yeah, let me, I can totally, I can, I, I have a good example right now. If I, the, the podcast business is very competitive. If I, the, 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 the best prediction would probably be given the data that this podcast would fail. But if I weren't optimistic about it, I wouldn't have done it. And yeah, so. And for I, all those people who tried and failed, you know, they can turn to you and say, well, you were just lucky. And you can say, well, in some sense, maybe I was lucky because I couldn't know that it was going to succeed. It wasn't just luck. It was how I did it. And my, forgive me, my cleverness and smartness and likability are what made it work. But you're right. I had no right to expect it to work out. But, you know, if we were all Eeyores, 
right? I mean, Eeyore is your classic depressed individual. I mean, you'd never do anything. You'd sit at home and, and say, no, the odds are if I go out and look for a job today, I will fail. So you have to wake up in the morning and say, okay, let's give it one more try. So, so maybe, I mean, this all feels very mushy to me. You know, I feel kind of embarrassed talking this way, but I will take evolution as a very harsh teacher. Evolution does not settle on things that don't work. And so maybe having that positive attitude is important if you want to, if you want to optimize your outcome. Yeah. I, it, it's funny. I mean, I've recorded a hundred eighty something episodes. I feel like the past five minutes were some of the most important and they were not particularly scientific or rigorous, but they were very valuable. And I think there's a pretty a deep truth there, but now I've, I've held you back from talking about PTSD, but let me ask a question about it. And I, I think that I've seen that you've studied not just sleep and PTSD, but autistic individuals, schizophrenics. And I'm wondering, I, I mean, you'll tell me what you'll tell me, but whether there's a lot of interest in doing this research, not just to understand these populations and their sleep behavior, which is, of course, tremendously valuable in its own right, but what it also sheds, what light it also sheds on the ne more neurotypical brain. You twisted that at the end. Okay. So I thought you were going to say, uh, ask that we approach these studies with a different goal. Um, and so I work on the autism and schizophrenia with a colleague and dear friend of mine, Dara Minoak, um, who works with those populations of schizophrenia patients and, and patients with autism. And from her perspective, she wants to cure them. She wants us to find, as we did, that their sleep-dependent memory processing is defective. And in the case of schizophrenia, it seems to be linked to a particular brain event that normally happens during sleep that doesn't happen nearly as much in patients with schizophrenia and that the decrease in that particular type of brain event called the sleep spindle, because the EEG goes up and comes down, sort of looks like a spindle for all of your listeners who spin their own thread, um, that it was a deficit in that that seems to be causing the deficit in memory consolidation across the night. And she's now working with pharma and with animal researchers to see if if, if we can find drugs, perhaps, that can enhance those sleep spindles and get them back into a more neurotypical behavior, at least in terms of sleep-dependent memory processing. It's interesting, with schizophrenia, all the worst symptoms, all the negative symptoms, the psychoses, the hallucinations, um, they have those pretty well under control now with medications. It's the cognitive deficits that 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 still cripples them. And, and some of those are connected to failures at sleep-dependent memory consolidation. So from I think from Dara's point of view, uh, although she's in many ways a basic scientist, she's 
always focused on, on helping to ameliorate the symptoms in these populations. For me, it's more like you said, I, I view them as boundary conditions. Well, here's a possible. So we see in normals that the more sleep spindles a person has during the night, the more, the more of these sleep events we see, the more they improve on this task or that task or with the night of sleep. But the boundary condition is what about people who get much, much less of them just because of who they are, because they have um, a psychiatric disorder? Um, does that mean that they have less memory enhancement over the night of sleep? And it lets us, it, it's pushing at the boundary conditions always helps you understand the basic science. So from my perspective, I guess I would say yes. A lot of the fascination is, whoa, can we find any schizophrenia patients that have no sleep spindles? That would be, so to me, watch, that would be so cool. Whereas to Dara and to me in my other state, that would be so horrible. So, so we're doing both of those in, in patient populations. Yeah, that's what I suspected. Very cool. Uh, just to reiterate, to make sure that I totally understand I don't totally understand anything, but I understand Dara's approach. So she she would like to cure schizophrenia and autism. And the idea behind attacking this through sleep is that regardless of the underlying etiology of the conditions, one consequence is defective sleep and fixing pharmacologically or behaviorally, however it's going to work, fixing this defective sleep could ameliorate the other symptoms of disorders. Or... Many of them. So, so Dara would yeah, argue many of them. Many of them. that you use sleep to proceduralize skills that you learn, as with the finger tapping task or the visual discrimination task. You get better at those after you sleep. And in fact, we proceduralize 90% of what we do. No one stepping off a curb says, that's a drop of about eight centimeters, which means I should back off on stimulation of those motor neurons by 5%. They just look at it and they step down. And there argues that a lot of what we see as more global cognitive deficits in schizophrenia may be because they haven't been able to um, proceduralize all the rest of it. That, you know, we count on being able to, you know, it's the chewing gum and talking, chewing gum and rubbing your stomach at the same time, right? If you can't do that, you're in a lot of trouble. And it's because we proceduralize those. If I told you, God, God, I know someone who can't recite the alphabet while remembering a 15-digit number, you'd say, well, I can't do that either, Bob. I mean, so, so there are things that we can proceduralize, which makes it easier for us to do everything else. And so there are things... There must might be a cascading effect where a lot of the deficits that are totally wake related are deficits because a sleep dependent failure to proceduralize other skills have just taken up so much of our available computing power, if you will, while we're awake that we can't do much of anything else. Hmm. Very, very fascinating. Now, I, I held you back twice on PTSD. So what is the research that you've done on PTSD? And because I, I can imagine right away, I mean, that's going to be, a, uh, I mean, it's a very emotionally intense 
disorder, I mean, by definition? So, alas, I've done no research on it. Um, why haven't I? My wife, who's a trauma therapist, keeps asking me why I haven't. It's because just technically it would be, it'd be a stretch for me and would take more resources that I have. And uh, I just didn't feel like I could go there. I try to get other, I try to get other people interested in doing it. But I've published actually a couple of theoretical papers where I've argued that PTSD, in fact, is a sleep disorder. In fact, it's a disorder of sleep-dependent memory processing. And the argument goes something like this. PTSD, first and foremost, is a memory disorder. It's a failure to process a memory the way we normally would. So... You're walking home and a car drives by and goes through a puddle and splashes water on you. And you're going out that evening and you don't have a lot of time. And it's what my wife would call a small T trauma. It's upsetting. It's, you get angry, you get upset and you deal with it. And by the next day, you've pretty much forgotten it and gotten over it. Um, there are other traumas that our brain doesn't seem to be able to put away the same way. Um, that after a month even, are just as raw as they were when they first occurred. And when trauma memories failure to go through normal processing, we call it PTSD. It's post-traumatic stress disorder because a month out, they're still having vivid recall, intrusive recalls of the memory. They're still being avoidant of places or things that might have been associated with the original trauma that no longer should be. Um, and so the question is, why hasn't the brain successfully processed it? And when I talk with Debbie, the first thing that's clear is it's not that people want to forget their traumas. They can say they do and feel like they do, but they actually don't. Um, no one who was raped wants to forget it, that that whole would be traumatic in itself. What they want to do is several things. They want to make it so that when they remember it, they don't remember it in all the vivid, gory details of when it first occurred. They want to remember a car came through a stoplight and hit the side of my car and crashed it in. And I saw my husband slump over with a piece of metal sticking through his neck. But they don't remember the color of the other car. They don't remember the music that was on the radio. They don't remember all the details, if they've processed it properly. They just have this memory. And the memory still makes them sad and still pains them. But the strength of that memory has been weakened in the emotional sense. So it's stripped away the background. It's reduced the emotional response to it. Both of which are things that we know happen primarily when you're asleep, not when you're awake. And it's then a third thing that sleep is really good for, which is it's taken the memory and integrated it in with other memories in this fictitious, fictitious <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's integrated this memory in with other memories in this person's life. Memories of 
other car accidents, memories of other times with her husband when they had good times together, memories of other sad things that have happened so that she can put it in her in perspective. That's really what it's about. She can put it in perspective and now imagine a way to go forward in her life. In a real way, being cured from PTSD more than anything else is about that. It's about putting the memory to rest and being able to see a way forward. And all three of those processes, the weakening of the associated affect, the, the, the blurring out of the peripheral images from the memory, uh, the integration with other related memories, all of those things are things we know that happen, are processes that we know occur preferentially while we sleep. So, a failure of those sleep-dependent processes would probably be enough to result in what we call PTSD. And if you want to add a piece to that, there's the PTSD dreams. So, if I were to talk to you about what dreams are, I would say dreams are about things that happen in our life, but they never are replays of the actual memory. We did a study back in 2000 where we had people identify elements in their dreams that they thought they were convinced they understood what happened during the day or in their lives that led to that getting incorporated into their dreams. And we had them rate how close those two events were to each other. And it turns out that at most one or two percent had the possibility of looking like actual replays in the dream of what had happened during the wake. We dream about what happens in our life. We don't dream what happened, with the single exception of PTSD, where people can night after night, week after week, <clears throat> in bad cases, year after year, see the actual traumatic memory replayed during their dreams. And that's a probably signaling a breakdown of those processes that normally help people recover from trauma. So, to see that memory of the car accident play out in a dream as someone opening a door and falling out of a car and not being hurt or being hurt or seeing a car crash where someone else gets hurt or where nobody gets hurt, integrating all of these imagine scenes that we get in our dreams puts the memory of the actual event into perspective and it's part of that process that has to happen if a person is to, co to, to heal from a seriously traumatic event. And the fact that they can't have those dreams is a sign that they cannot do that healing. I have found this story that you just told, this theory, very convincing, which is uh, good, even though I'm obviously an outsider. But there were two things that I wanted to to ask about. Uh, one, just is the is that first point that you made uncontroversial, that, that PTSD is at root uh, a memory disorder? Well, now you get into turf battles, right? Um, for a long time, well, so PTSD didn't used to exist. I don't know if you are aware of this. It started with shell shock, right? It was called shell shock, and it was considered a version of wimping out. 
you know, re-character, you know, pour yourself together, man, sort of thing. Um, and it wasn't seen as a, as a serious psychiatric disorder. That only really came, I think, with Vietnam, and it came over fights for reimbursement for psychiatric care. Um, and it was a political fight that was taken to Congress. And so it was actually Congress, as I remember this story, who said, yes, there is this thing called PTSD. Yes, it is a medical disorder. Yes, you have a right to medical care for it. Um, so at first, we didn't even think it existed. Um, and then it became, um, I think at first it was just considered like PTSD. And then it became an anxiety. I think in, in DSM-4, it was an anxiety disorder. Um, and now I think it has its own category that I can't remember at the moment in DSM-5. So if you push any of these people, they'll say, well, yes, of course, it's a memory disorder. Um, because that's really all we have from the event. I mean, if you, if you have scars, if you have injuries that didn't heal, physical injuries, you could argue that those are part of the PTSD that aren't just memories. Although I would then push and say, well, you have to remember that those injuries came from the traumatic event for it to contribute to the PTSD. Um, so I think, I think the question is that with the word primarily a sleep disorder, it, it's a, a memory disorder. It's a question of, you know, if you're a memory researcher, yes. If you're an anxiety researcher, maybe no. But every, everybody will admit when push comes to shove that yes, it's a failure to either initially form the memory in a proper encoding or else to process it effectively afterwards. And then the other part of the story that I would like to hear fleshed out, though it might be outside the scope of where you are in your own theorizing, is so this ultra-vivid, true-to-life dreaming signals that something involving memory processing in particular within the brain has been altered because obviously something's been altered within the brain if you have a disorder like this. But what I would want to know is just what has happened during this traumatic event that is altered in the brain. Like what does this event do? What does it alter in the brain? And why does it cause result in this these symptoms? Well, first of all, I'll refer you to my wife's Debbie Corrin's book, Every Memory Deserves Respect, with the initials EMDR, which is a form of um, psychotherapy that, that she uses in her treatment of trauma patients. But the book really goes through both the, the psychology and the clinical aspects and the neurobiology of trauma. So that's, that's a much better and lay person uh, description uh, of the question, answer to the question you asked. The basic question that we don't even know the answer to is whether the problem with PTSD is whether in the initial encoding of the memory, something went wrong. So Bessel van der Kolk, who is a, another very prominent trauma therapist, um, argues that the memory is not stored as a unified whole, that the individual pieces of it, 
the sounds, the smells, the visual images, the physical sensations are all stored, scattershot in the brain, which we know on one level they are, but normally when an episodic memory forms, it binds all those pieces together. So when you remember an extremely emotional event, you remember the, the sounds and the smells and the sights and the emotions and the actions and what happens and that narrative flow of it. With PTSD, people a lot of times cannot tell you what happened. They say, it was horrible. I can't describe it. And they actually don't have a story, a narrative that they can tell you. So there might be something that went wrong in the initial encoding of the information. The hippocampus, which normally binds the aspects of a memory together, because you have to appreciate that the visual memory is stored back here and the auditory is stored over here and the, um, the, the olfactory is stored up here and all these parts are stored in different parts of the brain. And the hippocampus takes all of those and binds them together into a unified whole. So it might be, I think Bessel would argue, that the hippocampus is overload and fails to bind them together. And that that failure then leads to an inability to do a lot of the types of processing that depend on that hippocampal binding. So that's one model. Another model um, might be, and I guess I've leaned towards this argument, and I don't have any reason to believe that this one is correct, is that for REM sleep to carry out its types of memory processing, which involve many of these aspects of emotional processing, when REM sleep occurs, the brain shuts off the release of both noradrenaline and serotonin in the brain. They're completely shut down. And somehow this allows the brain, well, we, we know ways in which shutting down noradrenaline release in the brain allows the brain to access associated memories more easily. As for example, you would need to do to construct a dream about a traumatic event rather than replay the traumatic event. And we know that people with PTSD, unlike normal controls, release more adrenaline while they're asleep rather than less. So it might be as simple, I hate to use that word, nothing's as simple as I want it to be. It might be as simple as with truly harshly traumatic memories, the brain cannot shut off that release of noradrenaline when they go into REM sleep. And so the brain cannot get into that neurochemical uh, milieu that's required to do this kind of associative processing. And we know that people with PTSD are hypervigilant even while they sleep. So two different models, either of which could be explanatory. And we, we're not good at figuring out experiments that would tease those apart. Although, although there's work with a, a, an adrenergic agent called prazosin, a drug that's known to um, 
stop those repetitive veridical dreams. So maybe <coughs> that would argue that it is a problem with the regulation of that noradrenergic system while we sleep. Yeah, in addition to prazosin, I mean, there are so many things to talk about regarding this subject, but I'd be very curious to hear how some of the research with psychedelic substances or uh, or MDMA would connect with your theory and thinking about about PTSD. But you have now opened up a window for me to start talking about dreams. And before we get into the content of your research on dreams, at the beginning of our conversation, you said that it was one of the things that you were always fascinated with, in addition to memory. Those were your, your two entries into the field. So before we get into the research, was there something about dreams in particular that you were curious about at the beginning? You know, I think what brought me into the field in the beginning was just an almost childish fascination with dreams. I mean, I happen to be someone who remembers a lot of dreams. Even now, especially now as I age and my prostate gets larger and I'm waking up to go to the bathroom multiple times in the night, I have just this gloriously rich dream life and I, I love it. When I, when I don't occasionally hate it, but mostly I love it. And the thought of studying it felt like, you know, being let loose in a, in a toy shop. I just wanted to do it. And then at the same time, I knew that there were fundamental questions about it that had to tie into our understanding of memory and how, how memories play out in our life. Because obviously our dreams are constructed primarily from our memories. So... So it was both of those things. But I think originally, it was just a, a simple love of dreaming. Hmm. Well, this might seem like a, a funny place to start for our listeners, but I, I've, you've, you've written about this, which is why I, I wanted to ask. But where do the work of Freud or Jung or other psychoanalytic thinkers intersect with current research on dreams from a cognitive neuroscientific perspective? Or, I mean, maybe they don't, but did they have any insights that have been confirmed subsequently? These are two characters that have come up a lot on the show. Right. So um, I got in trouble when um, I was on the Jim Lear News Hour back in 2000, actually, and they asked me the same question. I said, well, I think Freud was 50% right and 100% wrong. Um, he came up... Why'd you get in trouble for that? Well, because there were Freudians who were very unhappy with it. That's all. Um, he was very astute in his observation of some characteristics of dreams. He brought up the whole concept of day residue, the fact that in most of our dreams we can find content that's related to events from the day preceding or the last two or three days at the most, but usually from the last day, you can find some sort of link if you probe hard enough and often not having to probe very hard at all. So in those ways, I think he was he was prescient and, and very helpful. 
but the whole the whole shtick about repressed desires, um, I think, was a, a product of the Victorian era that he lived in, um, and was so totally off the mark as to put dream research back the better part of a century. And is that the idea that items that you repress come up in dreams in veiled forms? Yeah, the, the basic idea, Freud's basic dream theory is that when we sleep, our superego is weakened. And normally our superego, which is our most culturally sophisticated, the most um, healthy part of our mind, the superego normally represses any thoughts about all the evil things we really want to do. You know, when we walk past a woman, the superego has us say, oh, she's attractive, as opposed to me want to rape her, right? But that really, the id, that, that bottom dirty part of our mind, you know, that's what the id wants to do. The id wants to rape her. The id wants to steal his car. The id wants to take everything they want and to hell with everybody else. And the superego holds that down. And that's the ego, this sort of intermediate mediator, sort of live a, a normal life. When we sleep, for some reason, the superego loses its strength and can no longer suppress the id. And so when we dream, we are in danger of having all these vile, um, evil dreams that would be so evil they would wake us up. And that's the purpose of all this dream construction, all this um, association and this veiling of the, of the repressed desire. It's to keep us from waking up. That is sleep's, that is dreaming's function. To keep us from having dreams that would wake us up and disrupt our sleep. Now, you have to understand Freud came from an era where people probably thought many people dreamed many nights. Right? We now know that everybody probably dreams half the time they're asleep maybe 80% and maybe all of it. But certainly half the time we're asleep, we're dreaming. Whereas Freud only had access to dreams that people remembered when they woke up in the morning. And as far as he knew, that might be the only time we dreamed was just before we woke up. So they were sort of anomalies from the start. Um, and so that was the dream theory. And it has led us nowhere. Um, and only sort of muddied the word water. So I would say, yes, dreams help us look at what might be repressed memories and repressed desires in a more healthy way. Yes, they might help us um, process traumatic memories if they haven't gone into full PTSD in a more healthy way. But they also help us process falling in love, getting jobs, having children, leading a wonderful, successful life. Dreams process everything 
of potential emotional valence that happens in our life. And to try to clamp it down to just repressed survive, repressed desires, or as other um, theoreticians have argued, to just um, protection against physical assault, or just to protect against social assault. Um, they're each taking a slice, I think, a slice of what dreaming does and saying, this is the whole story. It does sound to me, though, like he was prescient in at least one other way in his belief that the that dreams are, are really meaningful. They're not just random. Yes. Well, actually, here's a funny thing. No theoretician, nobody who's written about dreams ever really thought they were just random. You're thinking of the work of Alan Hobson that started in 1975 with his paper on the activation synthesis model of dreaming, which argued from a physiological perspective that dreams were initiated by random firing of giant neurons in the pantine brainstem, um, which really freaked out the uh, psychiatrists. Um, but that was only half of Hobson's model because his the other half of this model said that the brain then took these random activations and tried to build the best story they could around them. And that those stories, like all dreams, were built from our memories. So it was sort of like a Rorschach. You know, you show people these cards that are more or less random ink blots, and they tell you what they look like, and the ink blots might be random, but the way the person sees those ink parts and interprets them is, you know, is all about who that person is and their memories and their understanding of the world based on those memories. And, and so that was actually Hobson's theory that we took those random activations and think of it as seeing some motion in your peripheral field and turning and saying, what was that? But already having a picture of what it might be before you turn your head. Um, but he got such good press and play from the misinterpretation of it as saying that dreams were random, that he really ran with that interpretation. But I don't think anybody has taken that, that idea that seriously. Right. I was echoing what I take to be more the lay understanding of dreams. Yeah, so it got into the textbooks back in the 70s and 80s that dreams were random events and didn't have meaning. Um, and I remember before I ever met Hobson, I read this paper, and I, I remember saying to myself, either this man doesn't know what the word random means, or he's never remembered a dream in his life. Um, so, but yeah. A generation of kids got taught that. Well, one thing I wanted to ask about before we moved on is I think that you said that regardless of what Freud thought, he only had access to dreams people remembered. But what we know now is that people are dreaming at least half the time, perhaps all the time we're sleeping. And what I was wondering is whether the dreams that we don't remember are of the same sort as those that we do remember, or if they're just completely different dream, a different kind of dream, and that's why we don't remember them. No, they're, they're, 
I mean, there's a lot of variation, obviously, among dreams. And dreams early in the night are actually different from dreams late in the night. And dreams in REM sleep are different from dreams in non-REM sleep. But in terms of what we remember, we remember what we were dreaming before we wake up. Now, in a small cut of dreams, mostly nightmares, the content of the dream actually wakes us up. That's, that's really the, the definition of a nightmare. The, normally, when we have a dream, we can have all sorts of affects in the dream, but they don't play out in our body. So you can be dreaming that uh, you have, you know, gotten into the middle of a, a tank of, of sharks and they're swimming around. They're actually taking bites out of you. And I can be monitoring your heartbeat from outside. And it's going, love tub, love tub, love tub, nice and slow. And you can have another dream where you're oh, sitting on the beach enjoying this beautiful sun and your heart's going, look, 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 look. So there's no, there's no correlation between these. When you have a nightmare, the content of the dream breaks through into your sympathetic physiology. And then your heart really goes thunk, 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 and your breathing goes up, and you start to sweat, and you wake up from that. But that's a real small cut of dreams. Otherwise, it's just whatever you were dreaming before you woke up. When people come to me, they say, Bob, I've never remembered a dream in my life. I don't think I actually dream. What I say to them is, drink three large glasses of water before you go to bed tonight. And I promise that you'll wake up multiple times remembering dreams. Because if I ask these people, if they say, why don't I remember my dreams? I say, it's because you fall asleep quickly, sleep soundly through the night, and wake up with an alarm clock. And they say, how did you know that? And I say, because you had no opportunity to remember a dream. So if you're dreaming along, if you're sleeping along and I wake you up at any point in the night from REM sleep, early in the night, late in the night, there's an 80, 85% chance that you'll say, oh, I was dreaming. Here's what I was dreaming. And if I wake you up from light non-REM sleep, there's a 60 or 70% chance you'll say, oh, I was dreaming. Wow. Yeah. Here's what I was dreaming. And they can be boring dreams, they can be really exciting dreams, they can be positive dreams, they can be negative dreams. I don't think there's any studies overall that shows that dreams you have when you wake up spontaneously are different from those when we wake you up, except insofar as you tend to wake up at the end of the night, which is a different point in your sleep cycle. So I think they're all basically, short answer, I think they're all basically the same. The difference is that we remember some. And what that tells me, when I look at it from an evolutionary perspective, is that whatever it is that dreams do, whatever their function is from an evolutionary perspective, has nothing to do with whether you remember them or not. If you remember them, they can be useful. They can give you insight. They can help you think about things or think about what you should be thinking about. Um, but that's not the reason that dreaming evolved. That dreaming evolved to do something in the moment while you're having the dream. 
I'd like to hone in on this word you just used, function. And you've already said that we dream differently at different times of the night. But do typical categories of dreams, so nightmares, recurrent dreams, sexual dreams, do they have different functions? Oh, those? Do they have to, No. I think all dreams have the same function. And it's encapsulated in what Tony Zaldra and I refer to as the next up model. Next up standing for network exploration to understand possibilities. I think whether we're having a nightmare or a glorious sexual dream, um, the brain is doing the same thing. It's taking recent events, or in some cases, older events, maybe connected to recent events, that in some way are tagged as emotionally salient, as important, what we would categorize as current concerns. And it asks a simple question. It says, what other information do I have stored in me, the brain, that might be useful in the future to deal with this problem. It's not asking, how do I solve this problem? What do I say to my boss tomorrow to keep from getting fired, even though he said he was going to fire me? It's more like, what experiences have I had that in some way are similar enough to what I'm worried about or excited about or just thinking about? Um, that it might be useful in the future to take this memory and more strongly connect it to the memory of this waking event. An example, I'm driving home and a car runs a stop sign and it's going to plow into me except that I managed to swerve into oncoming traffic uh, and, and avoid it and there's no oncoming traffic so it's all fine. It's what I call it the Cambridge, Massachusetts shuffle. Um, you know, and I get this rush of adrenaline and I get home and I tell Debbie, I'm taking that job in Iowa. I am totally done with Cambridge. And that night I have a dream. And in the dream, I'm at an amusement park with my son, Adam, who in the dream is 10 years old. As curiously, he almost always is in my dreams. Anyhow, we're at an amusement park and we're in bumper cars. And he's driving around and crashing into everybody, and everybody's driving around and crashing into me. And I'm sitting there next to him, and I'm saying, I, I, I don't want to be here. I really am not enjoying this. I, I want to get out of this. And then I wake up, and I laugh, because I obviously have had a dream about that car accident I was almost in the day before. So there's things to note. I don't replay the memory of that near-miss car accident. That doesn't happen. But also, in the dream, I don't even remember that that accident almost occurred. I don't say, oh, God, this is like that accident I was almost in yesterday. It's reactivating a trauma. Oh, God, get me out of here. I have no memory of it at all in the dream. In the dream, I'm just saying, I don't want to be here. And then I wake up. And I laugh because it's like, that's such a wacky dream to have. So when I look at it from the next up perspective, I say, okay, I see how my brain found that memory. It shares a bunch of, of features with that near-miss car accident. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I don't know what use I could ever make of that memory. And then I think about it and say, well, you know, you never get hurt when those cars crash into you in bumper cars. I don't know. Actually, now that I think about it, if that car had crashed into me, it would have put a big dent in the right side of my car. It might have thrown my back out again. I've got a chronic back problem. But I wasn't going to die. I mean, the, the catastrophizing that I did in the moment was probably overblown. I can probably not move to Iowa. And what's important is I don't have to remember the dream for that to happen. I could have not remembered the dream, but my brain still strengthened those connections, the literal physical synaptic connections between those two memories, so that when I remember the accident again the next day, I somehow have this image of all those cars crashing into me in bumper cars and it not being such a bad thing. And I might wonder, why am I remembering that? And have no idea that the dream ever occurred. But in the moment when I'm having that dream and that strong affect is occurring in my dream character, I want to get out of here, that signals to the brain, connect these two memories. There's something of potential use here. One thing that occurs to me as I'm listening to you talk is that you are speaking somewhat psychoanalytically in, at least from my perspective, and that you're taking your dreams to have inherent meaning for you uh, psychologically. I don't know if you, if you see that at all, but like I, I, for instance, you said your son Adam is often 10 years old in your dreams. And that makes me wonder whether you think individual recurrent pieces of content like this are analyzable, that something like this means something and can be discovered. Because I would also imagine that as a scientist, you don't want to take data like this and just assume off the bat that it's purely accidental or coincidental. Right. So... I guess if I were to speak through my model, through next step, I would say all dreams are meaningful. All dreams are meaningful in the sense that they are a brain construct designed, evolved to address a current concern in my life. And the meaning might turn out to be, in many, many cases, profoundly stupid. I mean, stu not stupid, useless. So, you know, I, I could have had a dream about people painting the yellow strip down the middle of the road. Um, and that probably wouldn't have been useful to me the next day. It probably, my brain probably wouldn't have strengthened the connections. But that dream was constructed because my brain. So meaning is a funny concept, right? We all know that. You know, what do you mean when you say meaning? Um, I'm going to say anytime the brain identifies statistically significant overlap between two memories, 
that discovery is meaningful, at least in the sense of identifying that association. When we talk about things having meaning, it's always in the context of something else. Oh, that that music I heard felt so meaningful to me. It really... And then you say what it connects to in your life, right? Oh, that movie felt so meaningful. It reminded me so much of. So meaning, meaning is never inherent in an object. If you talk to an author about what their book means, they will throw the book at you, right? Because they hate that question. What the book means depends on how the reader interacts with it. So someone reads Gone with the Wind and say, ah, it's the most romantic, beautiful story I ever read. And someone else reads Gone with the Wind and say, you know, it's another justification of male rape of spouses. And someone else watches it, reads it and says, well, it's just glorifying slavery. And it's not that one of those is what the book means and not the other. It's that to each of those people, that's what the book means. I always get upset when my wife says, it's really cold in here. When we're in a house that's incredibly thermally regulated within a degree or two. And I say, you're cold. That's fine. Say you're cold. Don't say that the room is cold. And it's the same thing with meaning. Meaning doesn't exist in the dream, except insofar as it connects things together. And if you remember a dream, it's only meaningful insofar as you're connected to things. If I wake up from a dream about some guy painting a yellow strip down the middle of a road, I would say that's one of the most meaningless dreams I've ever had. Unless I say, oh, but that stripe means I'm not supposed to cross over to the other side. That's what a yellow stripe means. But I had to do that to avoid that accident. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit meaningful. I don't know. Right? So, so all dreams are meaningful in that they're constructs of our brain and they're not random. They're based on rules and concepts and they're based on associations that we have internally constructed between different memories in our brains, whether they've ever come to conscious awareness or not. That's meaningful. Now, I will say, I'll just toss in here, I'm comfortable with 80% of our dreams being useless. I'm really okay with the venture capital perspective, that a venture capital expects 90% of her investments to go bottom up. If they all make a profit, she's not a venture capitalist. She's just a savvy investor. A venture capitalist expects most of her investments to go south and some of them to make huge returns. And I'm okay with that being what dreaming is about, that it pulls out, it throws a dozen possibilities at you, including one that's a really valuable insight. And it's worth the other 10 to get that one. At the outset of your response, you said that you were, you were speaking through next up and that dreams are meant to address current concerns in your life. That they've evolved but, to do that, right? Yes, 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 yes. So that's what I, that's what I meant by the word meant. Yes. Yeah. But 
Do you also think that recurring dreams, for instance, or recurring features indicate that something more long-term requires further processing? And I think PTSD might be an extreme case of this. Um, I would guess that I think on average they do. Um, that they don't have to be big, important things. I mean, I often wondered, I used to wonder why people have these recurring dreams about teeth falling out. Yeah, I don't know I if you those. ever had them. They're sort of gross. Um, but why would people have those dreams? I mean, why would so many people have those? And I wondered about that until I had kids. And I discovered that the average child spends about two years with a loose tooth in their mouth, one of 20 that are going to fall out. And there's a couple of months during which you can take one of those and turn it around until it gets stuck the wrong way, <laughs> right? So, so you know, it, it's sort of death by a thousand cups. So it might be that all of us have had so many small T traumas, just slightly upsetting um, anxiety-producing memories associated with our teeth falling out, that they've all got sort of mushed together into some network in our brain that's really easy to activate when you get it all close to it. The same thing with exam dreams. Um, you know, it's death by a thousand exams. I mean, every one of our exams is a little bit traumatic. Even the ones that were totally cocksure we're going to ace. There's still that little rush of anxiety inside us. So I think all of those form an intensely dense network of memories that are just easy to get to. So when your brain's saying, okay, um, Bob's having this podcast tomorrow on a topic he's not familiar with, I wonder how he's going to do the exam dream comes out, right? Not because I think it's going to be an exam. Well, maybe because I do so good. You know, it's going to be that same class of event. Or maybe not. Maybe it'll be one of those recurring dreams that in the moment has no useful meaning at all. So that, that but again, it points at our profound ignorance about how this whole process works, about how the, what the algorithms are for how a brain selects which memories to bring into a dream regarding a particular current concern, what aspect of the current concern to focus on, how to put different memories together in the dream, um, how to even construct a narrative. Um, those are all things we just don't have a handle on at all. I'm going to concoct a, a very artificial scenario here, but with regard to the 41324, the, the, the tap chunking task, if you teach this to me at, at 4 p.m. and you tell me that there's going to be a test, uh, an important test at 8 p.m., I would say, okay, I'm going to take a nap. That, that's that's what I'm going to do. And I'll do better on the test. And in that way, the napping, what we talked about in the first half of our conversation, it can be used as a tool. 
And are there any ways in which dreaming that you're aware of at this point can be weaponized or used as a tool? Um, call me up in another couple of years. Adam Horowitz, who is a postdoc at MIT in their media lab there, uh, worked with me as a graduate school student um, developing a device that he named Dormio, which is actually a glove that you wear with a bunch of sensors built into it that can detect when you fall asleep. And he wanted to do that because he wanted to study what are called hypnagogic dreams. Hypnagogic just is a Greek way of saying sleep onset. Because many people have used sleep onset dreams to um, foster creativity. Thomas Edison um, used to get stuck with some problem while he's working on an invention. And he'd go to his he'd go to his armchair and sit in his armchair, put his hand arm down on the arm of the chair with some um, with a fork held between his thumb and first finger over a tin pan on the floor. And he would think about the problem and try to solve the problem. And then he would drift off to sleep. And when he drifted off to sleep, the muscle tone in his fingers would drop and he'd drop the fork and it would wake him up. And he'd have the solution to his problem. He swore by it. Salvador Dali actually wrote about it on how he comes up with his creative images. He used keys over a plate, but the exact same protocol. So Adam wanted to see if he could come up with a device that A, could detect sleep onset easily without wiring a person up with a whole head of electrodes. And then he wrote an app to go with it. So in his first study, a nap study, he would have people lie down and the program on his app would say, um, I want you to think about a tree as you drift off to sleep. And then he'd wait till they drifted off to sleep and he'd wait anywhere from 30 seconds to three or four minutes. And then the app would wake him up and say, tell me what was going through your mind just a moment ago. And it would record what they say. And then it would say, okay, now you can allow yourself to drift back to sleep and think about a tree. And in a 45-minute period with MIT students who are all sleep-deprived, he could usually manage to get four or five of these sleep-onset reports. Finding number one, 80% of the reports had content related to dreams. Sorry. 80% of the report had contents related to trees. He could actually make them dream about trees by just getting them to think about them as they fell asleep. But after this 45 minutes of repeated sleep onsets and awakenings and thinking about trees, he then had each of the subjects do three tests. Write a creative short story, very short story, about a tree. Come up with uses for a tree that are 
unusual. And tell me the first verb that comes to your mind when you hear each of these words. Tree, branch, limb, leaf, soil, plot, all of these words mostly related to trees. And then he would have judges score them for how creative they were on each of these three tasks. Meanwhile, he's got another group of subjects who did the exact same protocol, but he said as they were about to go to sleep, pay attention to your thoughts as you fall asleep. Instead of, think about a tree. And on all three tests afterwards, the people who had thought about and dreamt about trees were objectively more creative when they thought about trees. And in fact, the extent of that creativity correlated with how many reports they gave, how many mentions of trees there were in all of their dream reports put together. So it seems like if we can get you to dream about something, it will make you, in the very short run, more creative thinking about that topic. And he's got some data and not enough from letting people go all the way into REM sleep and then repeating it and letting them go back into REM sleep and getting the same effect. So we don't know yet whether you can prompt them before they fall asleep in the evening and it'll work all the way through the night or if it only works for a short period after they've been prompted to think about it. We know from other studies that we can have people play a game like Tetris a couple of hours before they go to bed and not prompt them at all, and they'll still dream about Tetris as they're falling asleep. So it might be that they can get it all the way through the night. So that's, that's one set of studies that are sort of ongoing. But we also are working with people in a VA hospital who work with trauma patients to ask whether having them think about a traumatic event or an element in a traumatic event as they're falling asleep allows them now to process that memory in a way that they can't during a normal night because in a normal night they will have these PTSD dreams that are just repetitive. So something else I didn't mention is that as you looked at these dream reports people were having about trees, over the course of three or four reports, they became more and more bizarre. They might start with dreaming, oh, I was dreaming about a big oak tree that was in the backyard where I, the house where I grew up as a kid, to, oh, I was, I was wiggling my fingers and they had leaves on the ends of them, to, oh, I was planting a tree on the moon to put the flag on, you know, so all of these bizarre types of, of dreams. So it might be, if you did this with people with PTSD who normally can't break out of this cycle of only dreaming veridically about the trauma, that it might be able to get them to break out of that and dream more associative in a way will, that will let them start to have that associative healing. So that's another direction that we're looking to see if we can do it. And then there's the dark side. 
which is that in a recent conference in New York of advertising executives, 80% have said they'd like to try this technique in the next few years. If I tell you to think about, not, no, sorry, that's not the way the experiment was done. If I repeatedly play the word skittle, skittles to you after you fall asleep, and someone else, I repeatedly play M&Ms to them after they fall asleep. When you wake up, you will say that you like Skittles more, and she'll say she likes M&Ms more, and you'll say you're willing to pay more for a bag of Skittles than for a bag of M&Ms, and she'll say she's willing to pay more for a bag of M&Ms than for Skittles. The advertising world is very excited about this potential. Something like 80% of us now sleep with a phone or a speaker next to our bed that someone else controls. <laughs> so that's the dark side. Yeah. That was all incredibly fascinating. The hypnagogic dreams, though, this is entirely anecdotal, but I, I have noticed, it's funny that I didn't notice this my entire life, but I noticed this in the past couple of months uh, that as I'm lying in bed, I can tell when I'm getting close to falling asleep when I'm monitoring my thoughts because my thoughts become very incoherent. strange. Very yeah. strange. Yes. They are not connected to one another at all. And I sleep with a phone a couple of feet away from my bed. And I also write a lot of fiction, and this goes back to some of the stories you were telling. But I get a lot of ideas, very bizarre ideas about fiction around that, and I'll and I'll turn over, and then I might jot them down if they're they're good enough, and then I'll continue trying to fall back asleep. You don't have voice activated recording on your phone. Uh, well, actually, I turn my phone onto airplane mode before I go to bed, and the voice activated recording Siri requires. No, that's uh, if you want Siri, if it's just, well, you can have an app that just records your voice, not translate it. Right. But if I want to activate it without turning my phone on, I have to say, hey, Siri. So I have to turn it on anyways. But, but what I was going to ask, though, is... I'm sorry, Siri. Um, hypnagogic dreams, these these happen when you're still awake or is it a blurry time before sleeping and but while you're still awake? So I went to a conference way back in 1994, which was on sleep onset. And I summarized what everybody said as there is no moment of sleep onset, but I can measure it better than anyone else. So, being a reductionist culture in science, everybody can has a moment, you know, they have an algorithm for defining when sleep onset occurs, but it doesn't. It starts several minutes before you fall asleep and extends until several minutes after. And first you have the strange thoughts, and then you start to see, like, just pictures. You might see a face, you might see a landscape, you might see a geometric pattern but not like a dream. And then it'll start to become more like a, a narrative dream and you'll tend not to be in it. And then later you'll start to become incorporated into it. So there's this progression. 
And there are, in fact, eight Hori stages, H-O-R-I, a, a Japanese researcher who broke down, based on the EEG, broke down the sleep onset period uh, into um, eight different stages. So sleep onset is a very slow and gradual process. And, and you see it. You see it with thoughts that are a little strange that come before the thoughts that are really strange that come before the thoughts that come with a little image. And that's no one's to say when sleep onset occurs in that process. Might it expedite the falling asleep process by trying to foster or allow these very loose hypnagogic dream thoughts to occur? Oh, Lord, I, I must now tell you that one of my many techniques of helping myself fall asleep when I'm having trouble is to think a incoherent narrative stream. It will be, oh, I need to buy a book. I need the book so I can ride my bike to the moon faster so that I can see the stars when they come out of the movie theater. And I'll just build this intentionally bizarre thought stream. And I fall asleep if I can keep it up. Yeah. No, because I mean, that's great. I mean, it, it means I'm onto something because it's something that I'd, I've been sort of trying to do lately because I always I struggle with falling asleep. What, what you want to do is clear your mind and no one has figured out a way to clear your mind. So what you want to do is not get sucked into that sort of uh, reminiscing about events from the day or that planning of events for tomorrow. Um, which is probably rather what that sleep stage, what that sleep period or that peri sleep period evolved to do. That is to say, if you think about what you normally think about as you're falling asleep, it's things you didn't finish getting done today, things you got to get done tomorrow, things that happened today that you're not quite clear about, all these unprocessed thoughts. And I think your brain is literally lining up memories to be processed during your sleep period. That that's one of the algorithms it uses to identify what to spend its time on while you're asleep. And normally these images and memories will come back to you with a real flat out, with a really flat attitude with no affect associated with them. It'll be like, oh, that was a real bummer when I drop that phone into the toilet. I'm going to have to get myself a new phone. And you don't, in the moment as you're falling asleep, get all upset about it again. When you do, that's the origin of insomnia. It's this anxiety cycle where you remember something and it triggers an adrenaline rush and then you got to wait 10 minutes for the adrenaline literally to burn out of your body and then you get another one. So the, the secret is to try not to think about Think about anything about except what's important and thinking nonsense. I'll sometimes, I'll sometimes sing nursery rhymes, one syllable per breath, and visualize them. Visualizing them is, I think, a critical part. Now I'm going into how to fall asleep if you have insomnia. If you visualize things that you think about while you're falling asleep, then other thoughts don't intrude in. If I'm just singing a song, I can sing... Twinkle, twinkle, little star. 
and run a whole narrative in my mind about this thing I have to get done tomorrow, not realizing that I'm doing that. But if I picture the star and I see it twinkle, then those other thoughts don't come in. But yes, you can cut all of that out when you... No, no, I don't want to cut <laughs> all of it out. But, but thinking incoherent, unconnected thoughts, I think if you can keep it up, will push you to sleep. Haven't done the study. Uh, Works for you me. Found the top, you found the topic I was going to ask you about to end, which was what sorts of things people aren't already doing that wouldn't be necessarily intuitive that they could do to help themselves fall asleep. So now I've got to think of something else to end on. And I think a, a, another good note to end on is we talked a bit about how sleep deprivation inhibits memory consolidation. Are there any other dangers of sleep deprivation that are particular to dreams? To dreams. We know very little. So the, the worlds of sleep research and dream research are bizarrely disconnected in reality, just like studies of memory and emotion are disconnected. I mean, you can't separate memory from emotions, but we have cognitive neurosciences and we have affective neurosciences as if they were completely separate fields. So we do the same thing with, in all the sleep studies I've done, dozens, dozens of sleep studies, hundreds and hundreds of subjects. I've never combined memory studies with dream studies, except in one case. And and the reasons are technical. I don't want to wake someone up in the middle of the night to collect a dream report if I'm looking at how sleep stages affect their memory consolidation, because that might mess it all up. So, So we don't really know about that. But There was, we know um, from an, or we have from anecdotal reports from an actual drug trial that if you give someone a, a drug that is a serotonergic antagonist, sorry, a serotonergic agonist um, during the day, which is supposed to decrease violent behavior. That's why it was being tested. People who are violent become less violent if you give them these drugs. That the trial went fine until the trial ended. And the, when they stopped the trial, people started having these dreams early in the night that were so horrible that they, A, woke them up as nightmares, and B, they would be afraid to go back to sleep for the rest of the night. And they came to Alan Hobson uh, to ask if he could try to figure out why this is. And what we showed is that when you give cats in our study this drug, it blocks their REM sleep, so they have no REM sleep. And then when you stop the drug, they have this huge burst of increased REM sleep. So that's all I know we can say about if you deprive people of sleep, I don't know, but if you deprive people of just REM sleep, 
when they come back, their dreams will become much more intensely negatively emotional. And that might just be what always happens when dreams get more intense. As they get more intense, they tend to get more negative. But REM deprivation will push the dreams in that direction. It's not somewhere you want to go. Well, Bob, this was precisely the sort of conversation that I started this podcast to have. And so it, it wasn't just factually very dense and compelling, but I feel like I and hopefully my listener, our listeners as well, uh, will have some new fodder to reevaluate and, and introspect, reevaluate their own lives and introspect. I mean, there's, I, I now need to be thinking a lot more about my sleeping and my dreaming and what all of these things mean for me. So thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Well, thank you for saying that. That's a very sweet thing to say. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Airhome.